Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mental. All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, uh, Devin Palou. We are so glad that you guys are able to join us today. We have a big show uh, waiting for you guys. We've got Casey Luskin from the uh, Discovery Institute. He's going to join us with some uh, news and stuff on intelligent design. And uh, then we're going to have my good friend uh, B.J. Mauser on who uh, has a a doctorate in philosophy and we're going to talk about philosophy and christianity and why uh, christians really need to care uh, about those issues and why we should study philosophy as well as uh, apologetics and theology so thanks for joining us uh well if you have not liked us on facebook you can go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the blues facebook dot com slash theology matters with the blues and and there we have all of our uh podcasts and articles and other things that we 
put up through the week. So make sure you like our page. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring on uh, Casey Luskin here from the Discovery Institute. And Casey, uh, he's got quite the bio, so I'll just read a, a few things here. He's an attorney with uh, graduate degrees in science and law, giving him expertise in both scientific and legal dimensions of the debate over evolution. He earned his B.S. and M.S. in Earth Sciences from the University of California, San Diego, where he studied evolution extensively at both the graduate and undergraduate levels. So, Casey, are you there? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Man, it's really, really nice to have you on the show, finally. I know we've <laughs> we planned it a couple times, and and uh, I fell through uh at least one of those times, so apologize about that, but it's good to have you on. No worries. No no worries. Yeah, it's great to be on with you, Devin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, was, I just wanted to tell people, um, Wednesday nights, you know, I'm going through, uh, I'm teaching the uh, Discovery Institute's uh, new curriculum called Discovering Intelligent Design uh, with a group of middle schoolers, and you know, I could not recommend that stuff highly enough. Uh, that course, it is such a such a great book, and uh, the DVD that comes with it. Uh, you know, these it's about five or six middle schoolers who go to a secular school, so they're not they're not homeschooled or anything like that. So all they've really heard is uh, evolution, of course. Uh, but uh, they love the material. It's engaging. It makes them think, and uh, just wanted to really. Thank you guys for that, and uh, uh, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page actually as well. But tell us a little bit about the Discovery Institute. Sure, and I, I appreciate what you said about discovering intelligent design. That's really, uh, really great to hear that uh, your students are enjoying it. Uh, Discovery Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy think tank based in Seattle, Washington. Uh, we actually deal with a lot of different issues, ranging from transportation to communications to foreign affairs, uh, but I think we're probably most well-known for our involvement in the debate over evolution and intelligent design. That's probably what gets the most headlines, so that's what we're most well-known for. But we actually do a number of different issues. Um, I, however, work exclusively on the program that deals with uh, Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. Uh, my role at Discovery is research coordinator, where a big part of what I do is helping to make sure that our, uh, our, our fellows, who are scientists and scholars at various institutions, uh, both around the U.S. and also internationally, um, that make sure that they have the resources they need to be able to further the scientific and scholarly case for intelligent design. And uh, I also do a fair amount of writing and actually discovering intelligent design curriculum you just mentioned was a project I work quite a bit on, and, and it's, it's uh, great to be able to uh, help produce curriculum for students to learn about the topic as well. So we do a lot of different things, science and education, and, and uh, pretty much anything related to the debate over ID and evolution work we're probably involved in some way. Yeah, talk maybe for a second about the uh, ID of the Future podcasts and where people sure, can go to listen to Yeah. Um, ID of the Future is a podcast that Discovery Institute produces um, on the topic of intelligent design. You can visit the podcast at idthefuture.com. We usually put out, I would say, maybe two to three podcasts a week. They often include interviews with uh, scientists and other scholars who are interested in the debate over evolution and ID, uh, probably not too different from 
some of the kinds of interviews that you have on your show, Devin. But uh, certainly we, we try to have a pretty broad uh, cross-section of people, including folks who are you know, research biologists and what they think about intelligent design. We get to have uh, physicists. We have theologians on the show. I mean, it's a really nice spectrum of interviews, uh, kind of a great way to keep up to date on the debate. Yeah, it's, uh, I know it's, it's blessed me for several years that uh, I've listened to it, so I've really, really enjoyed it and really appreciate all you guys uh, do. You guys do so much for, uh, for us lay people that want to learn more and also want to be able to have the conversation because it really does matter, I think, at the end of the day. It really does matter. So, uh, so uh, we wanted to kind of bring you on maybe once a month and uh, have you talk about some of the latest headlines or whatever's going on in the world of of uh, evolution and intelligent design. So, yeah. Uh, so we're at it. Okay. Well, I think I'd first like to make a little announcement that uh, hopefully some of your listeners might be interested in. And that is that every summer, Discovery Institute has a program uh, here in Seattle, Washington, called Discovery Institute's Summer Seminar on Intelligent Design. And it's basically an eight- or nine-day program where students can come to Seattle to learn about intelligent design from the top uh, scholars in the field, including people like Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, William Dembski, Jonathan Wells, uh, Paul Nelson, John West, a lot of folks that I'm sure if your listeners are into ID, they're familiar with some of those names. Uh, the program is actually free to any student who is admitted to the program and attends and needs financial help. So we actually have uh, quite a bit of resources in terms of scholarships to help students to uh, get involved and attend the program. It's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, because slots are limited, we can only admit uh, somewhere between 40 or 50 students every summer. We usually get at least twice as many applicants as we have slots for uh, but students can come not only if they're interested in science, but also if they're into the humanities. We have one track that is sort of a science-focused track, and another track that's focused on the humanities. It's called the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Uh, both tracks discuss quite a bit of science, although the C.S. Lewis Program gets into other issues related to philosophy or uh, theology or history or public policy and law. Um, the program, I can't... Uh, <laughs> Uh, under, can't overemphasize how fun it is. Uh, I think the students get a lot out of it, and they really feel like they are sort of experts uh, in the topic by the time they leave. And so the reason why I wanted to mention this real quick here today is that the deadline for students to apply to the program, it was April 18th, but we've actually extended it until April 30th. So you've got what I guess maybe a little bit less than a week uh, that you can still apply to the program. If you're interested, I should also mention that the program is for college students and higher. Basically, you need to be a junior class level undergraduate or higher in order to attend the program. So we have, we have lots of undergraduates who are sort of upper division level students. Uh, we have lots of graduate students, master's level, PhD level students. We even have the occasional uh, postdoc or faculty member who will attend as well. So if you're interested in applying, you can find more information on Discovery Institute's website, and the URL is www.discovery.org slash S-E-M as in Mary. So www.discovery.org slash S-E-M. Uh, go check it out, and you can get all the information you need to apply through the website, including the applications, which are actually 
online. And again, we've extended the application deadline until April 30th, so you've still got about, uh, you know, maybe six days or so left to apply. So uh, maybe that will interest some of the listeners if they want to learn more about, uh, about IDs. Yeah, and we'll be sure to put the uh, link up on our Facebook page there so people can, can check that out as well. Great. Um, so I guess you kind of want to just an update on what else is going on in the whole world of ID. Is that is that pretty much right, Devin? <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Or what, whatever you have. Yeah, whatever you have. I know you're, everything you say has is, is got some good interest in it, so... Whatever you have to share is, is, is fine. Sure. All right. Well, um, I think some uh, folks may be aware that there's a common objection to intelligent design that it does not publish peer-reviewed research papers. And that's been a, an objection that's been false for a long time. Uh, we've got a website or a page on our website that lists, I think it's uh, well over 50 peer-reviewed articles. Uh, the total is now, I believe, over 75 articles, peer-reviewed articles that ID proponents have published in scientific journals. Uh, there are two recent papers that have come out that I think are, are really uh, important for furthering case for intelligent design. They're in the journal Biocomplexity. And one of the papers was written by a computer scientist named Winston Ewart, who actually works with Google. Um, he's got a PhD in computer science from Baylor University, and he's part of a team at the Evolutionary Informatics Lab, which is basically a, a team of computer specialists and mathematicians um, uh, William Dempsey, a well-known ID proponent, helped to co-found that lab, uh, along with Robert Marks, who's a professor of electrical engineering at Baylor University. Um, this, in this oh. new paper in Biocomplexity, Winston Newark basically asked the question about whether uh, irreducible complexity has been refuted. Um, irreducible complexity is, of course, a well-known ID concept that was developed by the ID theorist Michael Behe. And it basically says that if a system has multiple parts uh, which are necessary in order to provide any function, then a system like that cannot evolve through the step-by-step -step process of Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution requires that a system evolve one small little step at a time where each step provides some kind of a, uh, an advantage in survival and reproduction. But irreducibly complex structures require uh, a certain uh, certain core number or minimum number of parts to be present all at once before they give you any functional advantage. And so they can't evolve in sort of the step-by-step -step, uh, process required by uh, Darwinian selection. So over the years, a number of ID critics have published papers purporting to refute irreducible complexity. And they sort of publish these papers using what are called evolutionary algorithms. Now, what are evolutionary algorithms? Well, evolutionary algorithms are basically computer simulations of the evolutionary process which purport to model how natural selection and random mutation work. And so what some of these ID critics have done is they've, they've sort of programmed these computer simulations of the evolutionary process. They let them run, and they say, oh, my gosh, isn't it amazing what these simulations have produced? They've produced, uh, in some cases, they've claimed that these simulations have actually produced irreducibly complex features. And so what Winston Ewart and the, the other folks at the Evolutionary Informatics Lab have done is they've looked at these computer programs and they've asked, okay, do these programs truly model the evolutionary process in a way that, that really mimics biological reality? What I mean by that is, do they really model an unguided process of natural selection acting upon truly random mutations 
Or is it possible that these computer programs were sort of pre-programmed by the programmer to yield some uh, predictable outcome? In other words, they didn't model truly unguided uh, evolution that sort of relies on truly random mutations, but instead these programs actually uh, are sort of predetermined by an intelligent agent to produce some outcome. And they, so they wanted to know, what do these programs really show? Do they really show that irreducible complexity can be produced by an unguided uh, process? So what Vince Muir did in his uh, recent paper in the journal Biocomplexity is he surveyed a bunch of these programs and also published responses from ID proponents to these programs, and he found that every single one of them fails to accurately model the evolutionary process in a way that it really truly mimics biological reality. And instead, in each case, what he found is that the programs that basically use what is called active information, and active information is sort of information that has been inputted by the programmer to help the program find its search target. So this is sort of a, a way of understanding these programs. If you think of them as search functions, what is a search function? Well, a search function is, is Google. <laughs> Google is a search function. You go to Google, you type in parameters you want to find, and then it searches the Internet trying to find data that matches the parameter that you've entered. Well, evolutionary algorithms in, in sort of a crude, rough way uh, approximate the same thing, where they are trying to find some kind of... Uh, a solution to a problem through, through various search uh, functions or search mechanisms that have been programmed by the program. And these search mechanisms may, they could potentially mimic an evolutionary process where we sort of have random trial and error where, where maybe you produce randomly some kind of mutation and then you have a selection for certain traits or certain um, outcomes. It turns out that these, these programs, they always include information from the programmer about how to find the search target, uh, which basically amounts to what you might call cheating. It's not truly an unguided evolutionary process. Instead, what is called the active information that's provided by the programmer helps the program to cheat in finding the, the solution. Um, and so what, what Winston Ewer basically found is that these, these papers that discuss computer programs purporting to refute irreducible complexity Really, they have not refuted irreducible complexity. If anything, what he said is that they show that if you want to create irreducible complexity, you need the intelligent input of a programmer. In other words, what, what these papers actually show is that instead of showing that uh, irreducible complexity can evolve through natural selection, they show that irreducible complexity requires intelligent design. So I think it's a, it's a really fascinating paper. You can get it from the website. Uh, biocomplexity, it's, it's bio-complexity.org, and it's actually quite readable. And I think that if uh, some of your, your listeners are interested in learning more about uh, evolutionary algorithms and how they work, I, I definitely recommend they go and they read the paper. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating. We actually went over uh, irreducible complexity last night with, uh, with the middle school students. So, yeah, that, was, that, is, that is really neat. I know... I guess probably the the guy that's done uh, most of the objections with that would be uh, Ken Miller. Is would that that right? Or Ken Miller is not so much on the computational side of things. He is a biologist who actually I, I don't truly think Ken Miller spends a lot of time in the lab. I mean he does some research, but mostly he's sort of more of a a spokesman or sort of a a yeah he just goes around you know speaking on behalf of evolution. 
trying to defend it. Okay. He has made a lot of arguments, though, in the public trying to refute irreducible complexity, um, although I don't know if his own personal research has had anything to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. But okay, Ken Miller great. certainly argues. Oh, but, I mean, but you're right. I mean, Ken Miller certainly argues that Michael Behe's ideas about irreducible complexity have been refuted. Um, and I, we could talk about that if you want. Um, I, if you uh, you discovered discovering intelligent design, I'm guessing chapter nine, which deals with that. Uh, so you probably are familiar with some of these arguments. Yeah, yeah. I know they're talked about co-option and and. Um... And that as well. It, it's funny because last night I was actually watching an old uh, that old classic firing line uh, discussion with Ken Miller and Jeannie Scott and Michael Ruse, and then of course uh, Mike Behe and uh, William Buckley and Philip Johnson. And uh, it was yeah, it was just interesting because I know that's kind of when when those arguments started coming out. I think it was it happened in '98 and and. Uh, Dr. Behe had just came out with his Darwin's Black Box in 1996, and uh, Ken Miller had, uh, yeah, I know, I know the arguments have moved on from then, but it was it's just interesting to see, uh, you know, how it's progressed. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that in some ways, Ken Miller's arguments really haven't progressed very much. He's, he makes some of the same arguments today that he was making in the late 1990s trying to respond to Michael Behe, um, for example, when it comes to the bacterial flagellum, the famous molecular machine, which uh, basically works kind of like a rotary engine on the back of bacteria to propel it uh, around to find food, um, Ken Miller still claims, he still says that, okay, this rotary engine called the flagellum shares some of its protein components with another molecular machine that's a secretory system that's basically used for secreting proteins from inside the cell to outside the cell. And he says, okay, look, because the flagellum shared some of its proteins with the secretory system, therefore it could have evolved. He's been saying that, I think, since his 1999 book, Finding Darwin's God, and he continues to make that same argument, even though I, I think IT proponents have been responding to it literally for years. And, and the response goes something like this. Okay, fine. Maybe the bacterial flagellum does share some of its components with this other molecular machine, but that does not mean that the flagellum is not irreducibly complex. There's a huge leap in complexity to go from this, this sort of, you know, very, uh, you know, it's, it's a much less impressive structure, the secretory system, than to a spinning rotary engine. And citing the secretory system in no way accounts for the origin of the rotary engine itself in the bacterial flagellum. Um, William Dembski, I, I really like the way he puts it, uh, he says that citing this, this secretion system is like saying that we have a complete pathway to walk from Los Angeles to Tokyo simply because we discovered the Hawaiian Islands. And, and obviously, you know, that's, that's a real fallacy. Um, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. If you were going to come up with an evolutionary explanation for the flagellum, uh, perhaps the, the secretion system would need to be a part of it. And so they've got one, I would say, tiny little piece of the puzzle solved but that is a far, far cry from showing that an irreducibly complex system like flagellum could arise, you know, one small step at a time. Uh, and, and so I think Ken Miller's arguments, you know, they need to evolve a little bit, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Did, did, now, I know you were, you were talking a little earlier about you guys having the internship and that uh, coming up. 
any other ID events or, or anything we could be looking out for or any new books uh, on the horizon? Yeah, there are some new books. Um, uh, Lynn Demke has an exciting book coming out later this year. Um, I don't know if I can go into it too much. Uh, there's also going to be coming out very soon uh, from Discovery Institute. Uh, we've been producing molecular machine animations. Uh, we, we helped produce some study animations uh, of the interior of the cell a couple years ago. Uh, last year, we came out with a molecular machine a animation of ATP synthase. And in the not-too-distant future, we're going to be unveiling another molecular machine animation of kinesin. Uh, kinesin is basically a molecular machine that sort of works almost like a, a, a walking little railroad car along a railroad track uh, inside of your cell to transport cellular components from one part of the cell to another. And when you see the animation of this, uh, it's not out yet, although you can find animations of kinesin already on YouTube if you go and, and search for it. Uh, but basically, it, it functions like a little robot that follows these tracks inside the cell, walking along these tracks. It literally has two leg-like structures. And then and one leg will take a, a step forward, and then the next leg takes another step forward, and then the other leg takes another step forward, and it walks along these tracks to carry cargo um, inside the cell to its proper destination. You know, to, to look at these machines and not see that they're elegantly designed, I just don't understand how people can think that a structure like this can evolve you know, in a step-by-step -step fashion. These are finely tuned molecular machines. They're found throughout biology. Um, and if you go search the literature for, say, an evolutionary explanation of how these things arose, you're not going to find them. Uh, and I think they're a great testimony to design. So stay tuned on uh, Discovery Institute has a news website, Evolution News and Views. It's, the website is just evolutionnews.org, and you can stay tuned to that. We're going to be releasing this molecular machine animation pretty soon. That's great. That is that is good. I know you guys. Do you guys work with Illustra Media as well? I know a lot of the ID videos have have come out through them. I wasn't sure if you guys had other, maybe other videos coming out in the future. Or? So yeah, Illustra Media is a distinct organization from uh, Discovery Institute. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but um, we do work with them on a lot of their ID videos. They do a lot more than just ID. But when they have produced ID videos in the past, we've worked very closely with them. So, yeah, I mean, maybe some of your listeners have heard of some of these videos, uh, like Unlocking the Mystery of Life or The Privileged Planet. Uh, some of the more recent videos they put out are Metamorphosis, looking at how insects uh, undergo complete metamorphosis. And then the most recent one is Flight, which is really a spectacular video, uh, looking at just the amazing design of birds that allows them to fly and the, and the very diverse different types of birds that exist and, and some of the amazing things they can do. Um, and yeah, Discovery Institute has definitely uh, helped quite a bit with the production of those videos. And many of our scientists have uh, been in, interviewed in the, uh, in, the, in the documentaries that they produce as well. Um, yeah, so uh, I, there's another sort of interesting thing that has come out recently, Devin, if I can just go into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a paper last weekend, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal. It was an article that was talking about the work of a psychologist at Boston University named Deborah Kellerman. And basically, Deborah Kellerman is an evolutionist. She's an evolutionary psychologist. And she's very worried about the fact that children sort of intuitively will invoke a godlike designer to explain the complexity of the world around them. Uh, and this is true whether a child is 
brought up in a religious home or in an atheist home, um, children sort of have this innate tendency to view the world as inherently designed. And so she's very worried about this, that children sort of have this intuitive understanding that the, that the world around us looks like it was designed. And so what she is trying to do is to sort of deprogram kids from their natural tendencies to view the world as having been designed. And she's actually done experiments where she gives young kids, we're talking about, you know, ages five to eight, she'll give them picture books that are trying to explain uh, the concept of natural selection using sort of hypothetical stories. And then she surveys them before they read the book, you know, sort of what do they think about, uh, you know, where the world came from or, you know, whether it was designed. And then after they read the book, and she tries to uh, sort of deprogram them from their beliefs, these intuitive beliefs and design that they have. And, of course, she finds that when you sort of, you know, try to indoctrinate students or kids at a very young age with the idea that, that life was not designed, but rather it evolved, of course kids are going to change their minds. I mean, you can, kids are very impressionable. And you can, uh, sadly, you can tell kids a lot of things, and, and if they trust you, they'll believe you. This is another way that kids work. And so, of course, she's sort of deconverting kids from their natural innate tendency to see the world as designed through these uh, experiments. And so this is really fascinating on a lot of different levels. And it's also quite disturbing um, uh, because, on the one hand, why, is it, why should it be that kids have this innate tendency to view the world as designed? I mean, isn't that interesting, Devin, that that's sort of like an innate thing that kids have, regardless of whether they were born in an atheist household or a religious one, this is the way that children view the world. I mean, what, what, what do you think that tells us? And I'll throw this question at you. Uh, what do you think that tells us, Devin? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's uh, Romans one <laughs> all over again that we know. It's it's funny because you always hear from the atheist side that uh, kids are you know kids are atheists. They have to be taught to uh, see design <laughs> or believe in God. But uh, man, that's that is in, that is an interesting paper. I would really like to read that. Yeah, well, we've got a little story up on it uh, at Evolution News right now, written by my colleague at Discovery, David Klinghoffer. It is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, you're out, I thought the same thing that you just thought. You know, atheists love to say, oh, look, you know, it's sort of my natural state. I get along just fine without God. Well, actually, kids tend to believe in a divine creator type of being, uh, regardless of where they are. You know, this is at least what this article says, regardless of the kind of family they're born into. Now, what's also been disturbing is how um, sort of motivated these atheistic scientists are to try to uh, rid these children of these superstitious beliefs from a very young age. It really disturbs them. It really bothers them that people, especially children, believe in intelligent design. This is something that really, you know, they don't feel like they can tolerate this, and they need to deprogram kids from this belief. I think this goes back to sort of, you know, atheists are very worried about the fact that sometimes people disagree with them because their entire worldview is built upon sort of a sort of an intellectual superiority syndrome where they think that rationality and logic will always inexorably lead people to agree with them. And if somebody, so if somebody doesn't agree with them, that really bothers them. They have a lot of time being tolerant of and understanding of the fact that maybe other rational, logical agents might not come to the same conclusions that they do all the time. Um, and so, you know, this is part of, I think, you're, you're seeing that play out in this, uh, these experiments and these studies where they really are bothered by the fact that kids believe in an intelligent creator and they have to go and do something about it. 
So this is actually part of a much bigger trend also, Devin. Um, We've seen a number of cases over the last few years where uh, papers have come out or studies have been published about how to deconvert kids from their belief in a creator. Um, There was a a story that came out a couple years ago that the National Science Foundation, that's a taxpayer-funded government entity, uh, had given about $2 million to a project that was trying to develop ways to teach uh, fourth-grade children about evolution. And if you read, uh, it, actually their website had a nice uh, description of what their project was all about. It said it was very worried that a very low percentage of Americans believe in evolution, and they were hoping to rectify that with, you know, with this taxpayer-funded uh, curriculum they were developing. And so I actually wrote a blog article about the fact that, you know, this group was getting millions of taxpayer dollars to uh, try to get children to believe in evolution. And guess what happened? Well, suddenly their website radically changed, and they took down their complaints about the fact that so few Americans believe in evolution, how that was what they were trying to correct, and that they kind of sanitized it of, of uh, their motive. But what, what we're seeing here is really, I think, a concerted effort to try to get kids to stop believing in intelligent design for a very young age. I think that um, on the one hand, it's uh, disturbing to see people trying to, I think, indoctrinate children at such a young age. On the other hand, it's kind of encouraging. You know, they're trying, they're being forced to resort to these kinds of tactics to avoid what I think is a very natural, intuitive uh, answer that that humans, uh, you know, logically and rationally see uh, for why the world exists. Yeah. It just shows that secular humanism is a religion, you know, you see Dawkins and these guys saying that bringing your kid up in religion is child abuse. And here you have, you know, these guys not teaching them, but trying to literally deprogram them from what they know, from what they know is natural. I think it's far worse on their end than it is ours, for sure. Yeah, it's just a little bit of hypocrisy there, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I... I Definitely appreciate you coming on, uh, Casey, and I look forward to uh, to having you on in the future, and we'll make sure we get those links up so people can can get to the site. That's really the you know one of the big reasons we wanted you guys on was to get uh, get the word out and get people to your website and get your books and DVDs because they are such a incredible incredible resource. Well, thanks for having me on, Devin. It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to doing it in the future. All right. We will do it again next month. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. And so now we'll go ahead and uh, transition. We'll go ahead and take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back with our good friend B.J. Mauser, and we'll talk about Christianity and uh, philosophy. Why should Christians care about philosophy? Why should we study these things? So we'll be right back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one one way you might might illustrate that is a joke that was making around on the internet some years back, where scientists come to God and they say, "We can do everything you can do." God says, "Oh, that's interesting. Show me." And then they say, "Well, we can uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and and as they're about to continue, God says, "Well, wait a second. Get your own dust." Okay. Now, that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Uh, 
Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers, and design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there which point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is if you imagine a pan balance, and you've got a bale that includes one side, and you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds, it could be five pounds, it could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot, it takes you some way, you know, it's closer to the kingdom, but if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. Theology Matters, and uh, we're going to go ahead and transition in the show here from the Discovery Institute, and now we will bring on my good friend uh, B.J. Mauser. Just another uh, reminder for those who have not liked our Facebook page, if you go to Theology Matters uh, with the Palouz on Facebook, you'll see our, our page, and we've got a lot of our podcasts, and uh, you know, we've done a lot of shows. I think we've been doing this for I think it'll be two years in June or July, and uh, we've done done several shows. We've done uh, a, a lot of debates. I know uh, we did one recently, probably within the last few weeks, on the topic of abortion, which had uh, almost like 3,000 downloads in the first week, uh, with the atheist Matt Dillahunty and uh, the uh, pro-life apologist Clinton Wilcox with Scott Klusendorf's team there, Life Training Institute. Uh, we've done debates with Roman Catholics and Protestants on Sola Scriptura, as well as uh, the, the doctrine of hell, whether hell is uh, annihilation or whether it's eternal, uh, some of those things. So be sure to like our, our page. We've done a lot of uh, different topics in the past, and you guys can get our uh, podcast with that. So joining us today, I'm really excited for this show, uh, is Dr. Bernard Mauser, and he received his master's degree uh, in philosophy from both Southern Evangelical Seminary and Mark, Mark uh, Kett University, as well as a Ph.D. in philosophy from Marquette. Currently he's a professor at uh, Rivendell Sanctuary in Bloomington, Minnesota. He's also taught at uh, Marquette University, Southern Evangelical Seminary, Liberty University, um, and several several other places. <laughs> so I'm really, really excited to have uh, him on the show today, and we're going to look at Christians and philosophy. So, uh, Dr. Mauser, are you there? I am here. Can yeah, you hear me? It's good to hear you again. Yeah, I can hear you good. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to join us. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, did I leave anything out of the uh, introduction there? I know you're you're married and have some kids. Yeah, we have four sons, 
and uh, I'm sure they're listening right now in the house. And uh, Isaiah, Levi, Justice, and Corbin as our new baby, five years old and under, so it's a very busy house. Oh, yeah. boy, yeah. It's a lot of diapers. <laughs> it is a lot of diapers. It's a lot of fun, though, too. So, yeah, we enjoy it. We love it. Yeah, and my wife's well, name is Amber, and uh, we just love you guys. You're very inspiring to us, so you're doing great work there in North Carolina, and yeah, we just really appreciate your ministry, so I want to let you know that in person. I haven't really got to say that to you, but <laughs> I tried to encourage you guys via email, but... Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's, I mean, that's really kind words. We, You know, that definitely means a lot to us coming from you, for sure, so really... Really appreciate that. So, so talk to us a little bit. How did you How did you get interested in? Well, first, I, I guess I should ask is, how did you become a Christian? What kind of background did you have growing up? Did you grow up in a in a Christian home, or? I grew up as a Roman Catholic, and um, I fell away from the faith when I was at college, and uh, yeah, basically. I I would still go to church every Sunday, you know. Every it wasn't I wasn't a twice a year Catholic or anything, just Christmas Easter. But every Sunday, my family was in church, and I went through CCD and confirmation, all the the different sacraments and and so forth. And then um, in uh, college, it uh, everything changed with uh, my bachelor's in science, and I was taking all these different classes on uh, biology, and I was really steeped in the Darwinism and the influences of that. And at the same time, I started training in martial arts. And uh, I got into some of the occult variations that come from studying some of the the martial arts that aren't necessarily attached to martial arts. But when you start doing uh, what they call internal styles of martial arts, um, it gets a little scary with the meditation and so forth that they have you do. And then at the same time, I I was working on my bachelor's in science. I did a degree in massage therapy. So there's a ton of different new age healing techniques and tactics that they introduced there. So between the martial arts and the massage therapy, I had, had these weird new age Eastern views. But at the same time, I had a strong presence of the, uh, the science and atheism that, that came from the uh, Darwinism. So it was a, a kind of odd combination. But I, I discovered SES... Um, when I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary for my master's in apologetics, how those two actually are kind of um, very similar in that both view uh, the world as as if there's a strict causal mechanism. And so in the one realm, they see it, there's, there's certain spiritual laws you follow. And if you do these spiritual laws, there'll be these spiritual effects. And the other, there's strict physical laws that follow, but there's no outside interference in either realm, but you could kind of manipulate the natural realm one way or another. They're both variants of naturalism. So I thought it was fascinating. Like, huh, I guess that's why it kind of made sense because I always thought, man, how did I come to these opposing views? Because I was doing the meditation and stuff trying to manipulate this spiritual realm when I was doing the martial arts and trying to access in the occult, there's these things called the uh, Akashic or Akashic Records and so when you're doing meditation, in order to get knowledge, you would try to access these. Your spirit guide would help lead you to those. 
And so it was kind of kind of odd I was doing that at the same time as embracing so fully this Darwinism and, and plunging headlong into the science aspect of it. finished my bachelor's uh, in science from uh, Youngstown State. I decided to go back and either go into pre-med or uh, pre-physical therapy. Either one required me to take the same classes. And one of the classes I had to take as a 23-year-old was a critical thinking class with, by a uh, atheist philosophy professor. So it was really a very fun class for me. I loved it. I loved analyzing arguments and basically getting to debate everybody in class and all the different religious views and showing them what was wrong. And I had a Christian coworker who was a friend of mine who I said to him, Keith, give me your best arguments for Christianity. I'll show you what's wrong with it. And he brought me a Christian apologetics book. And, uh, and later he said, I just wanted to show you you're wrong. You know, I didn't care really for yourself, so I kind of feel bad about that. But you're just so cocky, I had to, I had to beat you down. <laughs> so I said, well, thank you for doing that. It introduced me to apologetics. So I had John Dominic Carson's Newsweek article on one hand, and I'm, I'm reading um, Peter Kreeft and Ron Tesselli's handbook of Christian apologetics on evidence for the resurrection. I'm like, okay, wow, this guy doesn't have very good arguments that the Christian position is full of evidence. And then I'm reading other stuff on intelligent design and so forth and uh, for creation. And I was just blown away that there's all this evidence I had never heard of. So I I thought, man, maybe I've been wrong all this time. Maybe I should read the Bible. And uh, as a Roman Catholic, you know, that was something that wasn't ever really encouraged. It wasn't necessarily discouraged, but I guess, you know, and, and the fact that nobody ever said to actually do it, I thought, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something to this Christianity. So I listen to Greg Laurie every day, and he's presenting the gospel, and I'm, re- I'm reading through Romans, what he's talking about. I'm like, oh, my, what is going on here? I've never been told this, so I better go talk to my priest. And I talked to him, and, and he, I don't think he really knew what was going on. Like, I was quoting Romans. I was like, why don't you ever tell me this stuff or tell our family this, that like, I feel a little deceived. He's like, well, you're clearly learning a lot. You're full of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, just go too fast into your life. (laughs) I'm like, well, can I share this with the youth group? Because if I would have known this, it would have been really helpful. And so I met with the youth director, and uh, he just said, I don't know whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. I don't know if he was God. And looking back, I'm not, not Catholic doctrine for sure, but the guy who was a leading me all those years, didn't believe in the resurrection or that Jesus was God. I'm like, well, no, no, no. I said, I'll just deal with that. Let me come in. Don't worry, I can answer those questions. Just let me talk to them. He never did. But <laughs> So I ended up going to a Protestant church in Ohio uh, called Old North. And at Old North Church, uh, the first day I met the pastor, I said, I want to go to seminary. And he said, well, how, how long have you been going to a non-Catholic church. I was like, well, this is my first day. He said, let's get you in a Bible study first <laughs> before you run, wow. run off the seminary. Well, I found all this evidence, and it was basically apologetics that, you know, had allowed the scales to drop from my eyes to see the cross clearly, and I accepted Christ, and uh, I never lost that passion. So about a year later, I ended up, I found out Norm Geisler started a seminary quite a while before my conversion at, at uh, SES, and every class had an apologetics plan, and that's what I wanted. <laughs> so that's where I went, and uh, after I finished my master's in uh, Christian apologetics in, in uh, 2003, going through that three years, I, I came to find out most of the theological heresies and errors and even attacks 
from both within and outside the faith occur because of bad philosophy. So I thought, well, I guess I should go get my doctorate in philosophy to better defend the faith. <laughs> and uh, then I wow. ended up Philip Marquette and Richard Howe, who's a professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, had always spoken highly of his time at Marquette. And one of my good friends, Max Herrera, had already um, been up there for a year. So I just followed those guys. And, uh, yeah, it was it was great to have that time up there basically being mentored by Max and he helped me through the program in a lot of ways so it's a very formative process and I graduated 2011 with my PhD so that's basically the short end of my spiritual journey yeah that is really that is really neat that is uh that's a great story yeah, so it's kind of exciting. It's it's been a really exciting adventure, and it's it's exciting to see how God continues to use it. And as I was, I was talking with a lot of different people, and uh, I was lamenting that the more I read of philosophy and metaphysics and ethics and all these things, though I'm I'm taking in a lot, there's still so many areas that I'm ignorant of, and it's like. Wow, Lord, you're continuing to mold me. <laughs> so it's kind of a fun process. Yeah, so, yeah, there's you know, lots of definitely a lot to learn for sure. One of you know one of the things uh, that I have found some of the some of the biggest uh, opposition that I get uh, about apologetics or especially philosophy is mm-hmm. uh, among Christians and. Especially for myself, because I'm I'm in that reformed camp, and yeah. for whatever yeah. reason, that whole camp is just very. Not all of them, thankfully, but a lot, a lot of them are just very anti-philosophy or very suspicious of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Why do you, why do you think that is? I think Christians are so, uh, at least I should say, in the evangelical world. Why, why are they so? dismissive or, or scared of uh, of bringing philosophy into uh, into the ballpark? I think there's a, a couple reasons. Um, one, a lot of them, you know, they, they take some scriptures out of context um, that, that warn against philosophy as if, you know, if you start going into philosophy, you're buying into things you shouldn't. So for example, I'm sure you've heard it time and again in Colossians 2.8. Um, oh, yeah. Make sure that you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which are based on the principles of this world. And so they're familiar with that. So in response, I think, they, they say, hey, philosophy must be bad. You know, Paul's warning here not to do philosophy. If you do, you're, you're basically embracing. So I think they have this biblical reason, and they see that as, as justifying um, avoiding philosophy without realizing, regardless of whether they say it or not, they have a philosophy. <laughs> it's just not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so right. you, um, it's, it's like the people who um, avoid, they say, I want to avoid culture. Well, you can't avoid culture. You're either going to have one that is tasteful or one that is a poor culture, but you're in the culture and you have one. And uh, Lewis, um, I think it was learning in wartime, where he basically lamented that there's these people who eschew philosophy. And in, in doing so, they don't realize that they've bought into a philosophy, regardless of whether they're trying to avoid it or not. 
They, everyone has one. So in putting that Colossians 2.8, actually um, the traditional way a Christian philosopher responds to this is the best way to make sure no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy is to be aware of it. So I, I heard of the, uh, Dr. Mark Foreman, who's a professor of philosophy at uh, Liberty University, uses the analogy. If, if I tell you to beware of the bridge out, you have to be you have to know where the bridge is out in order to be aware of it. <laughs> so beware the bridge is out. And you, you say, well, where is it out? Well, you have to know something about it to know where it's out. It's out up there a mile ahead. If you go up to the right or something. And so a lot of people are buying into these bad philosophies because they don't ever study it. And so the best way to be taken captive is to be completely unaware of what philosophy you've bought into. Um, but I think if it, when uh, a better response than that initial one, although I think that's right, everything that I said was right, I think what's going on in the Colossians text actually has to do with what immediately comes after. So go figure the context actually explains a little more fully what Paul is writing about in Colossians. And what he talks about there in, in the second part of chapter 2 is the Gnosticism that people had bought into. And he even uses the same words when he's referring to, um, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Now, where did he just get done talking about? Make sure no one takes you captive through hard and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of the world. <laughs> right before that. So in verse 20, he's talking about, hey, you, you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. Why, as though you belong to it, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. So wow. he's basically telling them, I, I, at least in the context of this passage, that um, they shouldn't be embracing Gnosticism rather than Christ in their walk with him. And then right after that, he, he lays out some rules for holy, holy living, keeping your sight focused on heavenly things, on Christ, and developing these spiritual virtues that occur when you are actually focused on eternal things. So it's kind of cool to actually put some of this in context for my Protestant brothers who object to the profession I've chosen to go into. <laughs> and so I've actually been, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of disconcerting when I'm sitting in the audience of a church and the pastor says, beware, lest anyone take you captive through Holland to set the philosophy. That's why you've got to keep your kids out of these philosophy classes. And actually, I know a major Christian university, I was just, told this week that disbanded the philosophy department because skepticism started entering into the school. So their solution to it, rather than hiring somebody who is an orthodox uh, Christian philosopher, <laughs> they just disbanded the philosophy department. Well, now you've just put everybody in danger because rather they're all imbibing a certain philosophy, but now they're unaware that they're doing so. So wow. before you could put them, they basically disbanded the whole department. So it's kind of odd. Yeah, well, you know, you, you see it. Like, you know, when we're out at Winthrop, we, we talk to students all the time who have been brought up in a in a Southern Baptist church and they've done the, you know, the VBS and all that kind of stuff. And then they get to college, and then they end up, of course, with in, in science class, Mm -hmm. And uh, not all the time, but a lot of times you have the professors there with the axe to grind against uh, Christianity and specifically, you know, intelligent design. Uh, but then the, the philosophy classes, 
they're dangerous for uh, students if they have no, uh, if they haven't been exposed to uh, different philosophical ideas in church. And I think I'm convinced the best way to deal with that is not to keep them out of the philosophy class, but let them see some of these, uh, some of the brilliant thinkers that our tradition mm-hmm. has to offer. You know, so they yeah. can they can they can read. Oh yeah, well you know, Aquinas uh, handled that. You know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. It's 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 just a shame that these type of things, like you know, because you ask the average younger Christian, what is what is omniscience or omnipotence, and mm. I mean they have a very surface understanding, and then the professors, of course, can just tie them up and. And knots with those those kind of things. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's just uh, it's imperative that um, you know they start teaching some of this stuff. And I would say even in the church, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely, definitely. That's what actually I've. It, it's exciting to be part of this Rivendell program because every class uh, is taught by the same professors, and um, we get to see the philosophy of all these things. So with me getting to teach physics and biology and economics and psychology, there's a philosophy of all of these, and so we get to analyze, okay, what's the worldview they're holding, and how does this, in Christian worldview, how does it hold up? And then sometimes we see, okay, you can actually hold a couple different views here and still be a Christian. But certain views you can't hold and be a Christian, and so what are, what's problematic about it? What are they assuming? So that, that's been kind of exciting to see. But beyond that, I've met with a lot of pastors around this area, who are interested in starting apologetics ministries. And I, I posted something a while back asking some of my friends who are pastors, why is it that in a lot of these big churches um, where they'll have a music minister and they'll have all these secretaries on with, with paid uh, roles, and these are not really biblical positions necessarily, why is it there's not a... a paid position for a Christian apologist and a lot of them just had never, it never occurred to them. They're like, that seems like actually a good idea. Maybe we would need something like that. It just never even occurred to me. Because like, that's actually something that's commanded that all the elders should be equipped to defend the faith in order to be an elder. You yeah, I, I, I think it is a paid position. I think it's called the pastor. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, but most yeah. of them... Oh, you're, you're right, that's, that's, they're, you're right. They're, they've got a pastor for, okay. for everything except, except yeah. that, yeah. That's a good point, yeah. So, so you'd say one of the reasons is uh, some of the biblical reasons. Did, did you have any, any other reasons you think that uh, Christians are kind of, in general, skeptical of, of philosophy? I, well, uh, the Protestants that... Um, you and I probably get to meet most of the time, they see philosophy as leading to atheism. So they're not acquainted with the good Christian thinkers, whether they be medieval thinkers. You know, if you're reading Augustine or Aquinas, you're less likely to fall into the same uh, traps because these guys answered all these questions that the uh, great uh, um, atheists of the 20th century and the 19th century we're bringing up, you know, they're, they're, they already answered the problems that everybody's saying, oh, wow, we don't know how to answer that. Well, you guys should have read the earlier Christians, but sometimes they're identified as Catholics, so Protestants, I don't want to read those Catholic guys. 
And then instead of uh, engaging the culture, they retreat like, hey, let's just go start a Bible college. So if you you look at at church history, a lot of times rather than engaging the culture and combating the bad philosophy with good philosophy, hey, let's just go hide. We'll just learn the Bible, study that, and then we'll go do evangelism because, hey, this is the, the Bible is the thing that saves. We don't need to know anything else. And, uh, right. you know, on mission fields, they're asking, hey, send us apologists. <laughs> we need guys to rebut all this bad philosophy. So it's changed. It's, it's been an exciting shift to see, in our lifetime at least. So yeah, more right, and more think, people are getting on board. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're going to be a good apologist, we were talking to Dr. Geisler, and I was asking, because, you know, I'm a student at SES and was struggling yeah. whether I should do the MA in apologetics or the MA in philosophy, and he said, you know, to be – to be a good apologist, you have to be a good philosopher. And I was thinking yeah. about that. You know, some best apologists today, you know, the Paul Copans and Geislers and Craigs and these guys, you know, they're all very trained in in philosophy. And you, you just see that, man, yeah. you have to have a good grounding in that uh, if you want to be a good apologist. And really, we're commanded to be uh, – we're commanded to evangelize. And in this culture, if you're if you're commanded, to evangelize, then you're going to have to do apologetics if you're going to be effective at all. Yes, you're exactly right. Yep. So, well, I guess I should, I should start and ask the obvious question that we've that we can go at 35 minutes, and uh, I guess I should ask the question, what is philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> well, broadly, I think most people hear the term philosophy and they, they know that it means the love of wisdom. But um, generally, when, when people talk about philosophy, they, they think of this is something that you do in the ivory tower. It's not something that's relevant practically to our day-to-day life. But so I think this is a, a misconception, as I've already <laughs> said before, that Everybody's using philosophy. You are your philosophy. You're, you're making the decisions because of the philosophy you hold. So if you're not right. thinking clearly about the consequences of what's going on, that, that affects you. And so one of the tools of philosophy is logic, and there's certain tools of philosophy. Um, um, among philosophers, most of them actually define philosophy as a second-order discipline. And let me explain the, the difference between first-order discipline and second-order discipline before I make this distinction um, a little more clear as to why I disagree. Um, that That's primarily what philosophy is. But a first-order discipline would be something like biology. Um, they study reality directly. They look at different kinds of life. And so the truth of whether something is the case in, in the study of biology is shown through observation, empirical testing. That would be a first-order discipline. What a philosopher, or a lot of philosophy professors like to say, is that philosophy is a second-order discipline. We don't study reality directly, they would say, but instead it studies the methods and presuppositions that are used in first-order disciplines. And so they think, hey, this is how I can help the biology guy, his terms. I'll help him define what he means by things and think clearly and analyze some of the basis upon which he stands. And... So what a lot of philosophy professors like like to do is that that's their way, I think, of saying, hey, we're important too because we can help you guys in all the different disciplines. Now, I definitely think philosophy does that. But I don't think that's primarily what it does or the only thing it does. 
uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Christian philosopher Etienne Gilson, he has this book called Methodical Realism, and he has this line at the end, and I think it, it marks a good distinction as to what, the way we should be as Christians who love the Lord, um, love to share the gospel, and uh, want to defend basically what he has made. And so we want to study the, the principles we find of logic and the uh, order of creation that we see so beautifully. Um, basically, Psalm 19 lays out, Romans 1 and 2 lays out all these different things that everybody recognizes, the Gentiles, the Jews. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You recognize that God exists because of his handiwork in creation, just like um, the guy from the Discovery Institute just got to say, all the children actually believe this, regardless of how they're raised. And the, there's a moral law written on their hearts, like Romans 2 says, so recognizes these. And so Joseon brings it home when he says, a philosopher talks about things. A professor of philosophy talks about philosophy. And so what I would encourage all, all Christians to do is to be philosophers where you're actually talking about reality. And so I just had this discussion with a, uh, a friend last week, and he was saying, it seems like there's a difference between Western and Eastern thought, and especially like we have such a focus in the current curriculum on all these great Western texts. And a lot of Christendom is, is focused on Western texts and you're missing the Eastern worldview and the, the uh, Eastern way of uh, not just viewing reality, but the way reality actually is. And I said, I, I think that's a false dichotomy. I think all of us actually directly are experiencing reality. So they may say they're not, but they betray what they really experience when they look both ways across the street. Because they, so they deny that um, things like... One of the Eastern teachings, they deny the reality of the external world. Or at least they say they do. <laughs> and then they take a bite. <laughs> so they can't really deny it because they recognize the difference between eating and not eating or between the bus running them over and not running them over. And so, right. those, so and how do we have access to these things? Because we all are living in reality. That's how we have access. I don't have to be a philosopher to access that. And so everybody is a philosopher, I would argue. You know, if you want to be, um, put yourself in an ivory tower and say, I'm a professor of philosophy, then you just teach philosophy. That's fine. You, you can do that. But at the end of the day, you're still making certain decisions that show me that you're interacting with reality. You probably can't go 10 seconds without interacting with reality in some way. <laughs> you took a breath, buddy. Right. So you recognize the difference between breathing and not breathing. <laughs> so the foundational principles of reality, we know a lot of things and we can access a lot of things and we don't have to be a philosopher to do that. Now let's think clearly about the things we actually access. And, and that's where you know, a formal study of philosophy can really help. A formal study of, of the different disciplines a philosophy, it's great to know how is it that uh, reality is made up. Like, okay, that, that might affect me if I um, hold one view versus another, if I hold a materialist view of reality or I don't. Um, asking questions about what is a human? <laughs> is there a difference between a human person and a human being? You know, obviously, great repercussions for the abortion debate. And right. uh, 
whether that's a relevant difference. So we see these playing out in society. What is marriage? Is, is marriage just a social contract, or is it something that's naturally a part of reality that we should recognize? If, if it's something that's natural, then you can't redefine marriage. So you might say you're redefining marriage, but that's not really – now you're not talking about marriage anymore. And so you have to look at these things – that are basic parts of reality, and all of us can do so. And then you can use some of the tools of philosophy. I'm not, I'm not discouraging anyone from doing that, but I would, I would pick up a lot of these different Christian authors who make these distinctions, and, and people might be a little afraid, like, oh, philosophy, that seems so hard. Well, there's introductory books that we can all access. You mentioned Paul Copan. He's got this fantastic book that I recommend just about anyone who wants to start learning some apologetics and philosophy pick up Paul Copan's book, True for You But Not for Me, Deflating Slogans That Leave Christians Speechless. Because he just goes through, works out how the principles of reality undermine all these different slogans that people use to discourage us from defending the faith. And so, yeah, he's a philosopher, sure. But you don't have to be a philosopher to see how what he's saying is true and just makes sense. Because it's based on reality. And so these guys who beat us up with, uh, that's true for you, but not for me, lines like that, and they don't realize they're contradicting themselves, it's, it's not because it's a philosophy, it's because they're violating principles of reality. And so what the book does is it gives you really easy ways to guide someone through and help them realize, hey, I, I'm contradicting myself. Okay, I don't want to do that. So anyways, I think that not to make a short question long, but I'm really good at doing that. No, that's 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 fine. Let me uh, let me say this too for people who are wanting to call in and uh, and talk with Dr. Mauser. You can call in at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, and maybe you have some objections to. Uh, Christians using philosophy, or maybe you have some questions uh, dealing with the different disciplines of philosophy. Give us a give us a call, and I'm sure I would love to talk with you again. You don't have to agree, uh, but uh, we could have some good discussion. Look, let me ask you this: I know, uh, kind of in our culture today, in America especially, I'm not sure about the other parts of the world, but we really see. Uh, scientism on the rise, on the rise, kind of this view that uh, we can't really know anything except uh, that which can be demonstrated through the scientific method or or through science. How does how does how can a Christian use philosophy to kind of engage with this pervasive uh, view that is really taking a hold, especially in the in the college level in that. That's a great question, and that's a very common objection. And actually, I held that position one time. But it didn't take me very long before one of my um, Christian friends, after I started studying apologetics, um, I emailed a friend. I said, how would you answer this? Because I'm running into this. This is a question I had, and after studying apologetics, I'm, I'm still running into this problem. I'm not seeing how you get out of it. And my friend just said, is that principle that you have to prove everything by empirical observation itself empirically verifiable? And I said, no. And he said, okay, well, if only, the only things that are true 
are things that are empirically verifiable, then your your uh, principle of empirical verifiability isn't true. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I didn't realize I was contradicting myself. Thank you for that. So right. if, if the, a standard can meet its own test, uh, uh, Frank Beckwith uses the example, I have a brother who's an only child. Well, this would obviously be something that's a self-contradictory. You can't have a brother who's an only child. Or I can't speak a word in English. I think this is one that uh, Dr. Geisler and Frank Turek often use to demonstrate a self-defeating statement. Well, you just spoke a lot of words in English. So obviously you can speak a word in English. So right. the problem with that principle is it's the principle of scientism is not itself scientifically demonstrable. It's actually a philosophical position they're holding that, that can't be demonstrated by science. And, and what's funny about that a lot of the attacks from science are b being raised by these new atheists. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Uh, Ed Fraser. Um, you've got a bunch oh, of great no. books. That book, The Last Superstition, I laughed out loud for a good quarter of the book. He's a fantastic writer. He, he uses great illustrations to make what make really difficult uh, lectures of Plato and Aristotle. He makes it so real and understandable that anybody can access it. And then he analyzes the arguments by the new atheists, and he just shows how not only how they're false, but how they're absurd. And the grasp of philosophy by most of these new atheists is not only minuscule, but less than, like, it looks like they've never picked up any philosophy book in their life. They're, they attack straw men. They're not actually attacking the Christian position. So uh, one of my, my yeah, favorite lines, you probably saw it, that I put up a, a while ago, um, it's basically making fun of Richard Dawkins and says, Richard Dawkins wouldn't know the difference between meta metaphysics and metamucil. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I, he thought about it hits the nail on the head. So he might be a good. He does. He's he definitely a kind of writer. But uh, BJ, uh, we actually have someone on the phone. So uh, that's someone who's called in. If you want, go ahead and take that call. Caller, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hello. Yes, did you? Hello. Did you have a question for Dr. Mauser or comment? Yes, I did. I was wondering, um, what is, what was the greatest moment you had where you used philosophy to further the kingdom of God? I think that it, it really came to bear when I was teaching at uh, one of the Catholic universities in Milwaukee. And at one point in the class, as I'm teaching these different ethical theories, one of the students, and, I, and I'm going through each of the different ethical theories, and I'm rebutting each of the ones that uh, were immoral. And one of the students says, I have a question, Professor. Why is it we feel guilty? And I was like, so you're, you're recognizing that you feel guilty. I was like, let me ask you something. When you... When you leave a store and you haven't stolen anything, do you feel guilty? He said, no. I was like, so why would you say that you feel guilty? He's like, I don't know. I was like, you feel guilty because you are guilty. I was like, but the Christian 
real, recognizes the guilt, and we have an answer to it. Where the other worldviews, they have a very different answer. And so then I got to share the gospel. And uh, a bunch of people after that class, they were all, four or five of them came up to me and said, so that was incredible. And, uh, and I've stayed in touch with a couple of those people. And they're like, I, I need to know more. I'm going to start reading my Bible. And um, I think the, the one guy trusted Christ, but I, wasn't, I, even, I shared the gospel. And he said, I, I think you just changed my life. <laughs> so that was uh, probably the coolest day was when I had such an overwhelming response from one class. And so that, that question often comes up, like, why do I feel guilty? Because you're talking about there's these things that we recognize. And it's like, I'm glad you're recognizing reality. You feel guilty because you are guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't feel guilty when you haven't done something bad. And so it, it's good to put the different worldviews in perspective and to um, help the students work through how these different worldviews conflict with basic principles of reality and how Christianity actually embraces these principles of reality. So now there's, there's different, you could be a, a plate, Platonist who's a Christian and view reality in a certain way, or you could be an Aristotelian or a Thomist and view the world in a certain way. But a materialist, you can't be a materialist and a Christian. So it's fun to be able to work through, you know, the different worldviews, how materialism doesn't make sense of a lot of things and uh, why it's the case. Does you have a, a comment or question? Or? No, that's, that's uh, really informative. Thank you. Um, I guess one more question. Uh, sure, I was listening yeah. to the martial arts part, um, oh, yeah. and you were talking about how it was inner martial arts versus external martial arts. I was wondering, sure. uh, like, I guess that's Buddhism and other types of Eastern religion. Yeah, well, there's different styles of martial arts. Um, the external styles, they don't focus so much on um, focusing your energy inside and meditation and things like that. So Tai Chi would be an example of an uh, internal style of martial arts, or uh, Bagua is another one. And these were some of the internal styles I studied. External styles would be things like Taekwondo or... Gracie Jiu-Jitsu or what you see in the, those mixed martial arts rings, those guys aren't, aren't spending all their time meditating and looking within to harness this universal power. You know, if the um, martial arts instructor starts referring to things like channeling the energy that's, that's playing from one part of your body to another, if, if they mean by that, this universal energy force, in the, the principles of physics, that if you strike in such a way, you could generate more f force versus okay, then they're using it properly. So it would be good, useful to distinguish the different types of, of force that uh, the martial arts instructor is using. But even then, it, the external styles, it's just not a primary area of focus. For the most part, they're just trying to punch each other and kick each other and break it different bones and inflict injury on the other person. Whereas the internal styles, it's more about, okay, let me become one with the universe. Let me um, use this as a time of meditation and really connecting with the energy around me. And so it's much more important for them. 
with the internal mm-hmm. styles. Oh, so it's like a way of life. Yeah, yeah. If you a, a good book that um, illustrates one of these internal philosophies is the Tao of Pooh. And so I actually used it when I was teaching some Eastern. I taught on uh, Eastern religions, both at Cardinal Stretch and Eastern philosophy, um, and at Marquette. And the Tao of Pooh explains the way of Taoism. And so it's a, it's very accessible, easy to understand. But probably one of the uh, best books from a Christian worldview, which analyzes some of this, is The Universe Next Door by James Sire. It's an excellent book. I think the subtitle is A Basic Worldview Catalog. And so they get into, you know, what the different religions teach uh, pretty well there. And and it basically lays out the problems and a Christian analysis of it. So those are both pretty good resources. The Dao Pu is more of a primary text. It's not going to critique Taoism at all. It just helps you understand it. Oh, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Have a great day. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, good good stuff, BJ. And I'm going to give that number out again for people who may want to call, and that is 760-542-542. Three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. If you have a question or comment, uh, Dr. Mazur would love to talk with you. So let, let me ask you. One of the we kind of talked a little bit about some of the objections from the Christian world uh, dealing with apologetics and philosophy. One of the things, one of the objections I hear a lot uh, about giving arguments for the existence of God is that uh, Romans one says everybody knows God already exists. So mm-hmm. if everybody knows God already exists, why would you have to sit and give arguments for him? So a lot of a lot of people uh, really went after that movie God's Not Dead because he's, you know, giving arguments and evidence. Why should we care about giving arguments and evidence if if people already know that God exists? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, well, Part of the the barrier to people becoming Christians is there's a lot of other things pulling our attention and drawing us away from God. And so one of the things that a a lot of apologists like to refer to, and especially those who are uh, Christian philosophers and apologists like Ravi Zacharias, is we, we try to overcome all these intellectual barriers so people could see the cross more clearly. And so, if that makes sense to you, um, yeah, definitely. In addition, in addition, the Bible itself, in, in several places, talks about we're supposed to every Christian is supposed to demolish arguments and every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And there's a lot of bad thoughts out there that people have uh, used to attack God's existence and the resurrection of Jesus, and different things about the Bible. They say there's contradictions in the Bible and things of this nature. So what we're supposed to do as all believers is be ready to to give an answer for the hope that we have. And so those are two different uh, verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, demolishing arguments and every thought, and uh, 1 Peter 3.15, being ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, but with gentleness and respect. So those are for every believer. It's not just for elders. I know I mentioned earlier, elders need to be, 
in order to be qualified to be an elder, you should be trained in some apologetics. Now, if there's elders listening that aren't, don't panic. Just pick up true for you, but not for me.
until he was older right. and he had his version right before his death. And he realized, I've been living apart from the Lord since I was eight years old. I repent and dust and ashes. And he turns back and and his, uh, his mate thought she, he must have lost his mind. <laughs> Simone, Simone Beauvoir, I think her name. What, uh, let me ask you, what are, give us a few of the arguments for God's existence, maybe for people who've never heard of them before or didn't even know that uh, one could actually give uh, some arguments for God's existence. What are, what are a few of your favorites? Um, well, the cosmological arguments, I think it is almost every Christian apologist I know is favorite argument. <laughs> and, and basically, it's, I mean, when you, uh, there's two different forms of the cosmological argument. Um, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Dr. Craig has made famous the uh, horizontal form. And it runs this way. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And then when you look at what needs to be the case for this cause, it itself must be uncaused. And so the way, uh, the way this has been attacked in, in popular atheist literature, like Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, is he says, well, if everything needs a cause, then doesn't God need a cause? And he's misstating the first premise. It's not a position that everything needs a cause. We say everything that begins to exist needs a cause. <laughs> the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. So when uh, Dr. Craig is in debate with atheists and they bring this point up, he said, I wouldn't have a problem if the universe didn't begin to exist. The problem is all the scientific evidence proves and points to the fact that it did exist. At some time in the known past, um, the universe began to exist, and there's several lines of scientific evidence all demonstrating this. And, you know, 95% of the astrophysicists all agree with all these lines of evidence and, and that the universe began to exist at a, at a certain point in the past. So when you, when you uh, put it, the whole universe in reverse, it comes down to a, a singular point of infinite nothingness. What does that mean? <laughs> there's the beginning of space and time itself, they say. Like, okay, so whatever it is has to be spaceless, timeless, and personal. And so, and people may say, well, why does it have to be personal? Because it has to actually be able to will this to come into existence. So it has to be something with an intellect, with a rationality, the ability to, to choose to will all this in existence. So that's where you get the personality. And so that's the... That's uh, the really is a good argument. Yeah, it is. It's it's very powerful. I, I like his argument there. Um, have you uh, have you have you read uh, Doctor Doug Grotice's uh, Christian Apologetics? I have not read that yet. I have not. Oh man, you need to get you need to you need to do yourself a favor and get that book. You'd really like that. The thing is like seven hundred something pages. It's a uh, Incredible book, but he's got some really neat illustrations that that go along in that section on the with the cosmological argument. But uh, the 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 second form, I think that's the one I really like the best. I think. Sure. Yeah, you know, that's that's, that's that my you. my is the second form, and um, so and the reason it's my favorite is because it's more philosophical and metaphysical, and so 
what people often say their objection to Dr. Craig is, well, all you showed is that God existed way in the past. What you haven't showed is that he exists now. And so what the vertical form says, and Aquinas is, is the one who I think really laid this out clearly. Dr. Geisler has also expanded on it along with some other Thomists. And they basically say um, things that are, well, there's, there's different ways to, to state this. One of them is the third way. And so it, the, uh, the third way is a reference to St. Thomas Aquinas. He has his uh, Summa Theologica, and he presents five ways to prove that God ex- exists. And actually, the first, second, and third way are all different forms of what I would say is this uh, vertical cosmological argument. I don't think any of them use the horizontal form. And so the... Uh, but probably one of the greatest strengths is the uh, impossibility of traversing an infinite distance. I think for a philosophical defense of Dr. Craig's version of a horizontal, so that's if I ever have to refer to anything philosophically, why it's the case, not just scientifically, why the horizontal case must must be, and that's what the version we were referring to before. Um, I just say, here, here's an easy way for me to illustrate it to students. I say, suppose there was an infinite distance, an actual infinite distance between where I am currently and my house. Would I ever be able to reach my house? No. Well, if there was never a beginning of the universe, then that would be an actual infinite, and we'd never be able to reach and, and place the house you put now. <laughs> You'd never be able to reach right now because it's an infinite time. So that's the philosophical. It's the impossibility of traversing an infinite distance. Now with the vertical form, um, the strength is, they say, every every contingent being, and a contingent being um, is a being that it is not dependent, or I'm sorry, a, a contingent being is dependent for its existence on another. For every contingent being, there must be a necessary being. So in a contingent being is a, a being that doesn't necessarily exist. So if you necessarily exist, then you're a necessary being. If you don't necessarily exist, then you're a contingent being. There exists one contingent being that doesn't necessarily exist. There must be a necessary being sustaining an existence. Now, uh, another attribute or some of the attributes to think of for a, a contingent being, a contingent being there's a distinction between its essence and its existence. And so, um, and I know for some people, they're they're probably thinking, essence and existence, what are you even talking about? Uh, The way to think of an essence of a thing is what it is. So if I tell you to think of a man, you you have an idea of what a man is. Okay, so if I tell you, think of a unicorn, you could tell me what a unicorn is. Because you could tell me what a unicorn is, does it follow that it exists? Well, no, of course not. Well, then a unicorn is not one of those things whose essence is existence. Um, Now, I could look at myself, and I know that I was born at a certain time. And so it's easy just, you know, upon encountering the entire world, (laughs) you look around, there's all these things that you create or or that are created, that weren't here at a certain time, and you plant a seed, and then the tree grows. And it's like, wow, 
it came to be. And so it's, its essence and existence are not identical. It didn't always exist, and you know what? It's going to go out of existence. People die. Things grow. And so right. one of these, there's a being whose attributes of uh, essence and existence are the same. They're identical. It's a simple being. It's not composed of an essence and existence. So at the moment of my wow. creation, my essence and existence came together. And so for me to be existing right now, my existing, my current existing is being sustained in place by a necessary being. And so I wouldn't even be existing if it wasn't for this necessary being sustaining me in existence. And everything that's a contingent being is only existing because it's being sustained in existence. So when I hear Christians talk about, I don't feel God, and how do you, how do you uh, reconcile that? Do you feel God? I said, I can't look around without seeing the hand of God. He's sustaining everything I'm looking at in existence right now. He is with us. He is present to us. And, I mean, nothing would exist that I'm looking at if he wasn't sustaining it right now. So he's intimately present to every cell in my body, every thought I have. And, and so that's the vertical form of the argument. Um, yeah, it, it, it's amazing. I mean, it's just, um, it seems to be ironclad. What are, what are maybe uh, one or two of the objections uh, that some have to it, and how do we answer those, those objections? And one other thing that I like about that argument, too, is, uh, and I love the, the, the Kalam cosmological argument as well, but it's like, as soon as, if I had to, you know, do this debate with someone who was well, you know, advanced in physics or something like that, you know, they're probably going to bury me. In, in the science, yeah. but this argument doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if the universe is eternal or not, right? Yes, yes, that's the, that's the strength of the vertical cosmological argument. It doesn't matter because the whole universe is contingent, it's dependent. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily exist, and not only the universe, but if there's anything in the universe that doesn't necessarily exist, there's a necessary being that necessarily exists, whose essence is existence. So, yeah, it's, that's an obvious uh, strength, apologetic strength for that position that uh, we don't have to debate with the physicist all the details and nuances of the different cosmological models that they might have that could challenge like the oscillating universe or any other models that uh, Dr. Craig is, you know, he's very well versed, so he could do that. That's fine. <laughs> it's just not, yeah, I, I've not done a lot of work in that area, so, but uh, the metaphysics is really where it comes to bear, and that, that's the vertical cosmological argument really talks about um, the, the principles of reality, the basic foundations of reality, which we refer to as metaphysics, so let me, let me clarify what I mean by metaphysics, because if you go into Barnes & Noble and you see metaphysics, it's not what <laughs> I mean by metaphysics. Yeah, that's the assault in witchcraft. So I met I met a little girl in the metaphysics section that was looking into witchcraft last time I was in Charlotte and one of my students said, Hey, talk to that guy. He used to be into the occult too and I said, Well why do you think why do you want to do that? And she said, Well, I want my boyfriend to get back together with me. I said, so you want to cast a spell to get him back together? So she said, yeah. I said, well, it, so 
what makes it good? You ca- you casting a spell if it works, it's good? And she said, yes. I said, so if something works, it's good. That, let me hear, hear you clearly. Yes. Okay, well, I had a job interview, and um, I, I saw the other candidate, and it was, it was between he and I, and I actually I broke his knees in the parking lot with a baseball bat, and I had my car, but I got the job. See, it worked. Does that make what I did good? And she just looked at me like, what? You're a psycho. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But you see what I mean is that just because something works doesn't make it good. And so it could still be bad. And what you might want to consider is that you're toying with demons when you you mess with the occult. Have you considered that? No, I haven't even thought of that. Then. Okay, well, maybe you should. Okay, my friend's over there. I think I'm going to go back with her. <laughs> she said. So, okay, sorry. So, you know, we, what we mean by metaphysics as philosophers and as apologists is not the occult. We mean the basic principles that make up reality, and we study those things beyond the physical realm. So when we're studying what is true, what are, what are the basic foundational things, and so that can include a study of all of reality, including God and angels. So it's very broad, it's expansive, and it encompasses all the other disciplines so that we can actually speak to basic particles in physics or any of the other subjects. So it was actually kind of exciting when we, when we went through the physics class, uh, Rivendell Sanctuary here in San Diego Christian College, um, they had this lecture series on string theory, and, and they concluded that their theory of everything is that strings make up the most foundational components of the universe, and they all exist because of these strings, which are these basic really small subatomic particles vibrating at very high, high speeds. And I pointed out to the class, I was like, what do they have to work with? Because they're only allowed to use material explanations. I said, it's matter in motion. That's the materialist position. That's all they're allowed to have. I said, for a Christian, we say, yeah, it's, it's matter in motion. We, we're not, we don't have to avoid the matter. It's not that matter's bad. So that could even be true that there are, are something such as strings. But it doesn't mean that's all there is. <laughs> that's just an element. You're just focusing on an element. But that's all they have. So I, I said, right. those brought the scope. So there's... Christianity doesn't fall if Christ, uh, string theory or any of these other foundational theories is uh, true or false. You know, that's fine. They can, they can be true. But what doesn't follow is that Christianity is false because they've just isolated one component of reality to study. And, hey, they might discover that that one component, that one physical component is really real. That's great. But it doesn't discount all the rest of it. So it, we well, need not be afraid of nor need we be afraid of, but, but realize when the scientists make philosophical statements, like they say, this is a theory of everything. We don't need God. Well, now that's a philosophical a statement that you're not even trained in philosophy to make. So you have no philosophical yeah. training, but you're making statements. And so you'll find uh, Hawking doing this and you know, Richard Dawkins constantly making all these things that it's just not even your realm of expertise in any way, nor even competence after reading some basic. You actually lack the basic competence that a first-year philosophy student would have. So it's like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, you, you see the you see the same attacks too recently with uh, the new Cosmos series uh, with oh, yeah. uh, Doctor Grass uh, Grassy Tyson. 
We actually mm-hmm. we had uh, Dr. Jay Richards on last week and did a whole show on uh, on Cosmos, but uh, uh, Leibniz, his version of the cosmological argument. Um, can you can you walk us through that? I have not read that since graduate school, so I wouldn't feel comfortable kind of speaking. Okay. <laughs> That, that yeah, is so understandable. I, I mean, so, much, so, many, so many different things. I know it kind of oh, all yeah. runs together and hard to, to tell apart. So, um, I was just going to say, if I speak to it and I misstate it, then um, I don't want people to use that to avoid the other arguments I have made. Like, oh, see, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'd rather just say, right. I'm not really sure. I'd have to look into that. <laughs> Not my oh, come on, man. You should have you should have to have Google in your brain there, just be able to to, <laughs> to whip any of them out there. Let's uh, let's talk about maybe one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith and how philosophy helps uh, is uh, the problem of evil. Wouldn't you say that's one of the one of the biggest uh, objections that come? And and how as Christians, how does philosophy help us uh, deal with that? With skeptics, yeah, that's a really good question. Again, you keep bringing up all these fantastic questions, all the big questions. So every Christian has to grapple with the problem of evil, I think. And some people, depending on how much it actually affects you, have to deal with it a lot more. Like if you're going through it, um, it's similar to what Lewis had when he C.S. Lewis is writing the problem of pain. It's, it's different than a, a grief observed. If you read the different treatises, and one, he's writing from a perspective, yeah, he's gone through some pain. He's seen some evil um, going through the war and so forth, losing his parents. But uh, after losing his wife in a grief observed, there's a different tone about it. And so with the biblical position that the classic uh, person they refer to is the problem of Job. Like, look at Job. Here's a righteous man that God allows Satan to take his family, take his wealth, and affect his entire physical health. (laughs) So this guy's completely devastated. And he's a righteous man. And so isn't isn't Job preeminent examples of somebody who has just suffered the most evil that we could see in this life? And uh, so th- this is one of the biblical examples that everybody always uses. Like, oh, you got the patience of Job. I, I can't believe you don't turn away from the face when you're going through a, a severe trial. And I actually heard uh, a panel discussion. I think it, it's still available between Ravi Zacharias, uh, William Lane Craig. I think there was a religious Hindu there and an atheist. Oh, yes, I got that on DVD. Man, that was a good one. Yeah, I think is yeah. there meaning in suffering is the panel discussion. Excellent. Yeah, we got Excellent. a Hindu priest, an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really, really great discussion, and uh, and Ravi answered that the atheist take on Job is actually he's missing the point of the story of Job because actually what Job was wanting was a face-to-face encounter with God, and that's what he got. And so he went through the struggle, and he ended up getting 
one of the things he was seeking. Now, you know, he didn't want to lose his children by any means or all the other things. But I, I think one of the lessons there is that, uh, and, and I think it's true for our whole life. We could actually see this in other areas, but that sometimes we don't know why God puts us through things. But the story of Job, he actually gets what he wants, with his, his, which is an audience with God, and that's what he's requesting the entire time. <laughs> and then after that, God restores double his fortunes, and he doubles his children as well. So he took ten of his children, and they're restored to him. And so I, I, uh, I think it was very insightful observation by Ravi, something you, you are sure experiencing with uh, Eliana, and I know I experience all the time with my boys, is that sometimes we allow them to go through these minor struggles in order to great, avoid these greater evils and these greater pains. Don't, and sure. so the classic example, you know, don't touch that, it's hot, and, and the boy doesn't, none of my children listen, don't touch it, it's hot, I'm telling you. And they just got to touch it, well, maybe because they're boys. Maybe your daughter doesn't do that. So, and, of course, they're going to touch it, and they're going to get burned. Now, ne- next time I say, hey, don't go out there. A car's going to run you over. <laughs> they, they pause because they've, been, they've had this pain. <laughs> now, I'm usually moving toward them, and there's no car coming most of the time. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, sometimes you go through these um, small struggles, and you can actually see those small struggles. And you allow those as a parent sometimes in order to teach them. You, ha- you let them fall sometimes. You know that it's g- they're going to get hurt, but they're learning to walk. And so right. you've got to let them fall <laughs> sometimes for them to, to learn greater lessons, to get stronger and to develop. And then when we, do it, when we work out, there's probably a ton of athletes in our audience because, you know, it's American pastime. Uh, forget about studying. Let's just play sports and watch sports. And... Uh, these guys didn't get that way without pain. And so the common myth is no pain, no gain. Now, it's not like you have to kill yourself, but if you want a really vigorous workout, you're probably going to have some pain, but you're also going to see yourself continue to develop. And I think, you know, those are some, some of the responses. But beyond that, here's what I think philosophy um, really can help in giving um, an uh, explanation for the problem of evil. And... That would be where, in order for there to be what are called second-order goods, you have to have first-order evils. So one example that um, I use is, in order for me to display a virtue of courage, I have to go through something called fear, which is an evil, being afraid. Why should I be afraid? Well, I have to, I have, to have this surgery of some kind. I don't want to have it, but I have to be courageous through it. And what ends up coming, I become more courageous as a person. I can't develop this virtue of courage unless I face these fears. And the next time, I'm less afraid. And maybe, you know, I uh, just become more and more virtuous. And if you look at uh, the different cardinal virtues, a lot of them are like that. And ultimately, the the virtue that I think God demonstrated, you know, at the cross, we get to see the perfect man who's never sinned, paying the ultimate price for the evil sins of the entire world, and he loves us so much that he embraces this evil, and from this incredible evil, and and the worst evil that could have ever been inflicted on someone, you have the greatest good. You have forgiveness. 
And so the message of the gospel, you have both the greatest evil present and the greatest good and this, with this sacrifice that, that uh, God made, had for us on the, at the cross. And so, um, so I try not to separate my Christian views from giving this theodicy because I think we're the only ones who actually have an answer to the problem of evil. And ultimately, you could see it at the cross. So, of course, there's some of the knowledge examples. Sometimes that we don't know, but our parents know. You know, the kids might not know. And sometimes you and I don't know. You know, God is infinitely more wise than we are, but we have to trust him no matter what. And that's hard. <laughs> but the, the more we grow, I think, the more we realize, hey, he's in control, not me. I just got to trust him that he knows what's best here. And I might not like it, but sometimes what I, my kids don't like eating their dinner. They just want to eat candy. But they, have, they don't see why. They don't understand why. But I, I, they need to have nutrition. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm much closer to my child than I am to God. <laughs> my reasoning, in some cases when I'm not enjoying this evil I'm suffering from, but I know God is infinitely loving and wise, and he, he loves me. And so there's a reason, even if I don't always know what it is. And so I know that because of the attributes of God. Yeah, that really helps with some of the attributes of God as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, when you're reading these guys going through such trial and travail, but, um, I've had several friends who told me, during their time at seminary, the most powerful class for them was systematic theology, where they're learning the attributes of God. And as as people who, a lot of my friends, we do a lot of evangelism, and we just love people, and it breaks our heart to see these people who are perishing. But what we can always take comfort in is that God loves them more than we do, and that if there's yeah. any chance that, to come to him, they will have it, 100% guaranteed. He loves them more than I do. He loves, he loves my wife, my kids, the people we love the most. He loves them more than we do. And that's just reassuring at the end of the day. It's like, well, you know what? It's not on me to have to make sure I do everything and I, their salvation isn't dependent on me in any way. I, sure, I'm supposed to be faithful. And that's what I'm called to do, but it's their race, and God loves them more than I do. Of course I want them to be in heaven with me. And uh, I love them that much to share with them, but ultimately, you know, God loves them more than I do, so I have to realize these attributes, and I can take comfort in that. One of one of the uh, questions, my good buddy Sean Holloway, he's in the chat room, and he, he asked, uh, as a virtue theorist, how would uh, you respond to the challenge of natural evil that has no effect on anyone's uh, virtue? What about the deer killed in the forest fire that no one ever knows about. Yeah, good question. Let me yeah, read that, that again. No, uh, no, that, I, yeah. I, I know his, his question. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a, he says, uh, and Sean, if, if we've got five or six minutes. If you wanted to call in real real quick, you can call in and state it as well, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. He says, as a virtue theorist, how would you respond to the challenge of natural evil that has no effect on anyone's virtue? What about the deer killed in the forest fire that no one ever knows about? Sure. Well, initially, so my initial response is 
Um, yeah, it's this is this definitely seems to be. I guess it could seem to be problematic in some ways, but um, ultimately, well, here let me let me preface my remarks before I start going into them. I haven't thought a ton about this problem, <laughs> so I'm shooting from the hip. So I could change my mind tomorrow after I think through my answer a little more. Like, that's a good question. So also here's something I actually do know about it is um, I know there's a lot written on this subject that the problem of natural evil, at least according to the people uh, I've read, like um, who was it, J.P. Moreland, Bill Craig, um, some of these guys, and and they're, they agree that, oh, man, I wonder if we have a storm warning. We've got the storm siren going off. Um, their basic position is that this actually isn't a problem for Christian theism, that it's been answered. Now, I didn't read the answer, so now I'm going to have to try to formulate one as you're asking me. My initial inclination is that you, you could ask the question about uh, for people who hold to like the oldest position in uh, Christianity, that before Adam and Eve, there were billions of dinosaurs killed. And so how is it that there was this evil before the fall? Now, got about, evil, got about two minutes. Got about two okay. minutes. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I'm it seems flying. Like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so here, let me, let me summarize before I work through all that. Um, what, where will up the ante? What about if a uh, a child or another human being is killed in a forest fire? Why does it have to be a deer? Um, so the uh, the answer ends up being well. I guess I guess maybe the difference between the deer and the child is maybe uh, maybe God would I guess on our position. Um, as as theists, we hold that God has a higher view of people than deer. So maybe there's some type of suffering that you can't see right. the, the value. In. So maybe that would be the distinction between why can't we up the ante to a child? All right, so let's go back to the deer then. <laughs> well, you know, we got uh, we BJ. We got like literally like 45 seconds left. Oh, you know, so we'll have to think. Thanks, Sean, I'm for asking a, a, a $10 question. It's 30 Richard seconds out. to go. I'll, I'll pass to Richard Howe, Devin Palou on that, and uh, <laughs> let these guys play you. And, uh, and if these guys can answer, Chuck Norris can. So that's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, we'll, we'll do this. I'll let you. I'll have you maybe type up, or if you want, you can you can think about it, put up a response, and uh, maybe we could start a thread on our our Facebook page, Theology sure. Matters, and give you give you a little time to think about that. Uh, yeah, I'll let you kick Sean in the butt. <laughs> he yeah, he's the virtue. Yeah, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's do this, man. It's, it's it's been a great show, and I uh, really would love to have you back on uh, as soon as possible because uh, really enjoy learning about this stuff, man. I, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is because I want um, 
you know, one of the things I, I is within the Protestant tradition, uh, of course, that we're part of is the uh, kind of that, that anti-philosophy and anti-apologetics that has creeped in. Of course, it hasn't always been like that. And it's, you know, I want people to, 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 to hear what you had to say and hopefully encourage them to, uh, to, to get into some of this stuff and uh, yeah. start studying. Um, take 30 seconds and, and wrap us up. Well, I just want to encourage everybody that you can access a lot of these resources I mentioned, and uh, the, the Paul Copan book is a great starter book. Keep tuning into different great teachers like uh, R.C. Sproul has a series on uh, great thinkers and philosophy. I think it's called The Consequences of Ideas. And uh, I would uh, just encourage everybody so that you're not influenced by negative worldviews to do that. Great, and uh, appreciate having you on, and we will definitely look forward to doing future shows with you, brother. Thanks for taking an hour and a half out of your day to talk with us. Thanks a lot, Devin. Have a great day. Okay, buddy. God bless. God bless you. Bye. All right, folks, and we will be back next week. We've got a show with Rob Bowman coming up. I've got to figure out, I've got to try and nail down that date. Uh, but he has done a response to Bart Ehrman's uh, new book. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. it it's basically you know, like Inventing the Deity of Jesus, something to that effect. Um, and so uh, he's written a response at Parchment and Pen, and he's been on the show before and has done some stuff on the Doctrine of the Trinity. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to get Dr. Bowman uh, back on the show pretty quick, and we've got some got some other things uh, lined up, so appreciate you guys staying with us, and we look forward to uh, seeing you next week. God bless. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org.